when I was expecting you, I was still very low. And yeah, I just was in this dark, dark bubble, really, I think. Everything was going on around me and I almost became that I didn't want to leave the house. And if I had to go and buy a loaf of bread, I'd wait till 10 to 5 before the shops close and then make myself go out because I had to. I think the biggest help to me was if somebody had kind words. I think being able to let somebody care about you and you can voice your feelings a bit, you know, and if somebody can identify that in a new mum and say, look, I know where it's going, you know, it does end eventually. You can't say when, there's no magic formula for it. It's individual for everybody but you're not the only one in the world, which is what you think you are at the time. Having a baby is meant to be the most joyful time of your life. But for many mums and dads, it can be the hardest and at times the darkest of places. Welcome to Blue Mum Days, the podcast for anyone struggling with parenting. Nina Spilstead has had a long and varied working life. From starting off as a ball boy during the Eastbourne Tennis Championships whilst at school, Nina went on to join Hurstman Zoo Observatory in the 1960s. She became a scientific assistant, otherwise known as one of the Astronomer Royal's personal computers, and whilst there she requested that female assistants could access working on the telescopes, just like their male counterparts. Nina had to follow her husband's career when it took them and their young family up to rural Scotland. Whilst there, she spent 15 years as a ceramic assistant and painter, whilst also raising her family. Nina has two grown-up children, a boy and a girl, and suffered from postnatal depression with both. She also has a grandson and is also my mum. Welcome to Blue Mum Days, Mum. Hi, everybody. First, I must say how very proud I am of my daughter. And I hope that any of my experience can help you. Thank you, Mum, because it's, yeah, I think this is going to be the most, probably the most painful conversation that I've had as part of this, the podcast, because we haven't talked at great lengths about your experiences of PND um, while I was a child and while Graham was a child, because it seemed so painful, and I know you've kind of put it in a box, haven't you? Well, yes, and I think it's not any help for your children to know, especially if you know your daughter's going to have a baby. She doesn't want to know what troubles you went through, you know, and anticipate that trouble for herself because you're hoping she's going to have a better experience. And it is what it is, you know, and um, I fortunately was able to see Vicky quite early on after she'd had Stanley and I sort of could recognise the signs that she was going down that route. Mm. And we managed to get her to see somebody and it was diagnosed. And fortunately, she got quite a lot of support, which I must admit was not there when I suffered it. There was absolutely no support whatsoever or no knowledge. And it just felt very alone and in a black hole and the only person in the world. And everything else was going on around you and you just didn't really understand what was going on. So... So sort of take us back to when you were first pregnant. Was your first pregnancy a successful pregnancy? No, my very first pregnancy, I had a miscarriage at three months. I then had two further miscarriages. 
And then when I was pregnant with my son, um, because of the previous miscarriages and my personal sort of history, they decided I needed to stop work at three months and just rest and get monitored by the hospital very closely every week. But having said that, it was nothing like called the midwife, where you had your own personal midwife and friendly faces around you. I was taken by car to a hospital and I never saw the same person twice. And it was all very clinical and it was almost like we were in a pea pod factory, you know, ready to pop our peas out at the end. And that's how it was. Um, I was induced because my son was in danger um, because I had preeclampsia and I was put on bed rest for two weeks before I was induced and unfortunately instead of him arriving in the allotted seven to ten hours after induction he didn't arrive until 27 hours mm. afterwards by which time I was really left alone on my own for several hours at a time and the whole experience left me really feeling very traumatised and I think that didn't help obviously with my following experiences. Can, obviously we'll talk in, in detail about the, the birth experience if you're happy to yeah, mum because yeah, 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 yeah. obviously yeah. you know I don't want yeah. to cause anything to, to trigger you. No, 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 no. Um, horrible, absolutely horrible mm-hmm. that you, you lost some babies. Were you given any support when you had miscarriages back then? None at all. It was, oh, don't worry, you'll have, there's plenty more time to have other babies. And there was no such thing as being allowed to mourn for that lost baby. You just sort of had lost it and then you were supposed to carry on as normal. You know, completely from day one. Yeah, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? Because only now are we starting to, to sort of uh, appreciate what women actually go through when they have a miscarriage. And I know when I had mine... I grieved for months and months and I still get upset thinking mm. about it. So for you as a woman to go through that and it just be, you know, it, I, I found, you know, in the 21st century, very matter of fact at the hospital, it was kind of like, you know, normal to them, whereas it was devastating to me. But that must have been exceptionally hard for you to go through. Yes, and I think the other thing is, because having had three you then began to feel a failure. You know, why as I, a fairly intelligent woman, why can't I have a baby when, you know, the humblest of animals can reproduce quite easily? And I started to doubt myself. And obviously it caused a lot of anxiety because when I was pregnant with my son, I had that worry all the time you know, especially up to the first three months, was I going to lose him? And even after that, you know, it's all in doubt. Um, but in the end, I mean, he's here and he's a lovely boy. So Yeah, yeah, of course. And we, lo- we love him very yeah. much. So how hard was it for you to go on the bed rest for that time? What, in the, in the two weeks prior to it? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that was okay. I mean, they were just monitoring. I had a heart monitor... Well, he, he, there was something struck my, my waist to sort of monitor Graham and to see if he was okay and not in distress. And then I think they came to a point where they decided that really he needed to come out. Obviously, he might have been damaged. Mm. And, um, and of course, 
I was totally ignorant about the whole procedure, didn't really know what was going on at all. Um, I had no experience of young babies or children, and I th think, worst of all, we were away from our hometown and family, so there was no support, and even where we lived, I'd been working miles away from where we lived, so when I was at home, I didn't know anybody, so I was also very lonely. Did, was there anything like NCT back then? Were there any sort of baby groups? Nothing at all. Even when I came out of the hospital, I, I, I was sent to a sort of cottage hospital for about seven days where there was a bit of recuperation, which they don't do now, which I'm kind of horrified that people get thrown out of hospital more or less two hours after they've had a baby. Um, and there was chance to have a bit of rest there and we were taught how to bath the baby, which end to put the nappy on. And the babies were taken away at night time and the nighttime feeds were done by the staff, which gave us physically a bit more time to recuperate. But at the end of that, when I left, I was just giving a card that said, that's your health visitor. And I went home. And I didn't know what a health visitor was. I didn't know that I could phone them up and ask questions. I was never told that there was a baby clinic that I'd go to weekly and get the baby weighed. And I was in total ignorance. And then one day, somebody knocked the door and it was a health visitor who came in and then said, oh, you seem to be doing all right, and then went away again. And that was about it, really. What, what about your mum? What about Gran? Was she... Did she? Adv <laughs> We're both laughing. What a silly question! <laughs> I, I was gonna say. I mean, had she explained anything about birth or? Oh no, no, nothing was ever discussed. No, not at all. So you you had no idea what to expect. No, no, um, no, totally not. And and obviously back then, um, husbands and partners weren't encouraged or weren't allowed to come to the birth. Well, they were. Um, and my husband was going to come, but because I was induced during the day, they expected me to have the baby during the day, but I didn't. And when he phoned up sort of in the evening to find out how it was getting on, I didn't sort of tell them that I was getting quite frequent pains until after he'd phoned because I thought, well, it'll all be over and done with next time he calls. But I was still struggling on in the morning for another few hours and he did come at the very end, mm. you know. But he wasn't there. Yes, he was there, I think, just for the actual last bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so when you were sort of left on your own, how did you feel? Oh, totally bewildered, frightened. Just really didn't know what was going on. It was just endless pain. Um, yeah, I think mainly frightened, mm. very lonely. Yeah. yeah, and when Grey finally arrived, what was that moment like for you? Well, obviously it was a relief that he was finally born, but he was born with a very oddly shaped head because he'd been in the birth canal for so long, and they called it a caput. So if you can imagine what a gorilla's head looked like, mm. that's like the baby's head was. And to be honest, I found it very difficult to sort of bond with him for all the pain I'd gone through. But then, of course, I realised he'd gone through it as well. Mm. Um, but the other thing is I, I took quite a time to bond with him. 
Other people that I knew had pretty little girl babies and Graham was not the best looking child, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) I hope he's not listening to this. (laughs) Um, But it took a little while before I really bonded with him. I don't know why, but maybe that's all part of the PMD problem. No, it's 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 it can be a factor. Mm. I mean, not every woman with postnatal depression has a bonding issue, but an awful lot do. So, um, you know, there must be some sort of relationship there. Yes, yes. I mean, somebody t- did tell me that if you don't have a natural birth and have a, an induction or something, you don't have the same hormones released. And that might contribute to the fact of having PND. You know, there may be a sort of hormonal cause that maybe starts it off. But I'm quite sure that once you've had the baby, especially if you don't have any support around you, you just get totally exhausted, totally exhausted and overwhelmed by the responsibility of looking after this little individual, realising that their life depends on you. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I still remember bringing Stan home and just feeling utterly freaked out by the responsibility. Mm. Um, just yeah, it's so overwhelming, isn't it? And so when Gray arrived, I mean, obviously you were incredibly exhausted after the birth, but did you feel any moment of euphoria when you met him for the first time? No, no. no so, so just glad it was all over. So many women that I've spoken to have said the same thing, Mm. that there there seems to be a myth. You know, I'm sure some women have that incredible moment and it must be the most wonderful feeling in the world. But there seems to be a myth that all women have that when they give birth and so many don't. Yeah, absolutely. So how long were you kept in hospital for after you had Grey? Um, I think it was about six days it was actually moved out of the main hospital where the labour took to a cottage hospital. So it was sort of like a recuperation. And that was quite good because you did get a bit of physical rest there. I can't imagine what a situation would have been like if I'd had to go straight home, straight after the birth, like my daughter had to today, you know. How did it feel going home with your new baby? Well, I suppose I was glad it had happened. My mother-in-law was, my mother, I should say, was there to help for the first week. But I did struggle, I must admit. Um, And Bob went off to work and my mother was there and I was there, but my mother wasn't somebody that was able to have a very close relationship with children. And in fact, I don't think she really wanted to have children. So I didn't get any mothering instincts from my mother. <laughs> Definitely not from Trudy. Mm. What about dad? Was he any support at all? Your dad? Mm. Well, I suppose he was suppose he was sort of proud that he'd done the thing that you're supposed to do at that age and have a son. Um, and I suppose he tried to do a little bit of tokenism, shall we say. Mm, mm. But it was very much up to me to deal with the child, you know, and it wasn't really very hands-on dad at all. 
Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> and um, what about feeding? How was feeding for you? Um, very difficult because Grey had quite a lot of trouble trying to suck and really struggled with that. Um, and I tried my best for about five or six weeks, but I just wasn't making the milk. He was struggling with it. And in the end, I had to sort of give up and go on to a bottle feed, which in retrospect, if I'd have done that much sooner, would have been much better for him and much better for me, because at least I would have known how much food food he was taking, because I would sit with him suckling for about an hour, and I don't think he was getting much at all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I quite envied people that could feed their babies, you know, because I, I felt that was the right thing to do and what I wanted to do. And I quite reluctantly started him on bottle feeds. But then, of course, after that, it was much better. Yeah. yeah. How did you feel guilty? Oh, yes, terribly. Yes, once again, a failure. You know, failure as a mum, because I can't produce the milk. In the same way as I felt a failure, I can't produce a baby. Yeah, it's, it's, and that's such a common thing mm. that, you know, in my generation, that's still happening. Yes, and, yeah. There's, there's still a real stigma to mums, you know, or a pressure for mums to breastfeed, which obviously everybody knows that, that, you know, that is the ideal case scenario if you can do it. But for those who have, you know, real difficulties or aren't able to for one reason or another, there does still seem to be a kind of a, a feeling of failure or, or not being as good a parent as you can be for using a bottle. And I can imagine in back in the 60s, was that even more frowned upon? Um, well, I don't know really, because I was very much on my own, so I didn't have people around me relating to that, shall we say. Um, I think the sense of failure was my own. And so without a support network around you or, or friends, you know, how did you spend your days? Well, I just muddled through as best as I can. Um, obviously, the feeding took a long time and obviously he wasn't getting fed very well. So consequently, I seemed to be feeding him an awful lot and getting more and more tired every time because in the night, you know, I might need to try and feed him two, three times. Um, so once I started on the bottle feeding, that got better and I was getting a little, little bit more sleep. Um, but just loneliness and exhaustion was a big, big factor. And I, I think if the one piece of advice I could give new mums is to try and be kind to yourself and look after yourself. You know, you're not just here just to be a wife and a mother. You need to be you as well. Yeah, no, de- definitely. Just to say, my mum's cat's meowing in the background. So if you hear a weird noise, it's Napoleon sort of howling. But I, I think that's a really crucial point because I think as mothers, we tend to forget ourselves. And, you know, even the way we're treated when we have a child, it's all about the baby. And quite often we're not treated with much compassion by health visitors or... Uh, the medical profession, you know, brilliant as they are, you are just told to grin and bear it and get on with it. And 
I think it's very important for for mums especially to take care of themselves. They always talk about putting your, your life vest on first and, you know, a happy mum is is going to be the best thing for your baby. Mm. So with Grey, when did you start to feel that you might need help or that you might have an ongoing problem? Well, I suppose it came to me when I was just crying for no reason, feeling really black, really down. And I don't know whether my husband suggested I saw a doctor or whether I thought I ought to see a doctor about it. I don't know. Um, but, but I think I was given some tranquilizer tablets. Additionally, when Graham was about three months old and my um, maternity allowance finished, we were extremely hard up because in those days when you had a mortgage, the mortgage interest rate shot up to 15%. And so I was trying to seek some way of earning some extra money and that came in the form of cleaning a public house at eight o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock in the, eight till 10 in the morning taking Graham with me in his pram. And I did that for a whole year, every single day. And because that was quite physical hard work as well, as looking after the baby, I'm sure that contributed to the PND as well. Yeah. Just sheer exhaustion. And you were saying that you did that on holidays as well? Yes, I did it. They wanted it done on Christmas morning as well. Yeah. Oh, my God. So what was the doctor's... You know, did you feel you were listened to by your GP mum? Not really, no. It was I think I think the default thing was give them Valium, I think it was. Um, which obviously I suppose dampened down things. But I can honestly say that whatever it was I was given, there are certain amounts of that time which to me now is a blank. I don't remember things. I can't remember when my son got his first tooth. Quite a lot of, you know, steps like that. Do you think that was part of the medication or do you think part blocking it out because it was such a painful time for you? I think a bit of both actually, yes. Because I I, I mean until now really I I don't look back on that time. You know, because you want to forget it, don't you? Mm. Are you sure you don't? You're okay talking about yes, it? Because yes. I don't want to... No, wanna... no, no, that's fine. Because if it's going to be helpful to other people... Um, I mean, myself, if I'd have known that other people were feeling like that, I would have felt so much better. Or if there was another mum to talk to that was having the same thing. Mm. But I see these mums gaily pushing their babies along in their prams and being quite happy whereas I was just struggling all the time yeah yeah um was there any discussion about PND had you heard of that as an illness no not at all no no I mean I think it was classed as depression but not specifically PND and did you have any experiences with depression before yes I had done yes yeah I think in my early 20s after we'd left Eastbourne and gone to London for my husband to train as an electronic engineer, I just took the first job that was available to me, which was in an unemployment centre. And it was such a depressing job. 
Um, and also, I was on the birth pill, and I'm sure now that that's contributory hormonally. And I got very depressed when I worked there and ended up having to leave and find another job. Um, I honestly can't remember how I managed to come out of that depression. Were you put on meds back then? Yes, or... I was put yeah. on some sort of meds, yeah. And what was Dad's yeah. sort of attitude? Was he sympathetic or...? You give me that look again. <laughs> I think you should know the answer to that. Don't think you noticed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's Bob. That's yes, yes, Dad. That's right. yeah. Um so just going back to what you were saying about milestones, you after a fashion had a, a sense that Grey wasn't developing in the same way as other babies. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I think on my coming back pushing the pram from the pub, having done the cleaning, I did meet another girl and got friendly with her. And we used to have perhaps coffee together. And then I realised that Graham was not progressing in the same way as her son was. And I actually sort of queried that with her. And... She just said, oh, don't, don't be so silly, you're just being a fussy mum. And any any worries I had about Graham's development was classed as a fussy mum. And, you know, he's just a slow developer, you know. But I think instinctively I knew something was not quite right because he didn't walk until he was two and a half. Of course, by that time I was pregnant with Vicky and... I suppose I really noticed the difference because as Vicky developed, she was overtaking Graham. That's me, you can say yes, you. Yes, <laughs> yes, you. Yes, you, you. Yes. <laughs> um, yes, you started overtaking Graham. And I mean, when you were first born, Graham was still in nappies, so I had sort of like two of you in nappies. Oh, God help you, that has been horrible. And he couldn't walk, so he had to sort of either sit on the pram in a little pram seat on the front and later on we managed to get a twin push chair and really for about the first two or three years of Vicky's life they were almost like twins in their development um, you can say oh, you, the first sorry. two yeah yes, yes, <laughs> <laughs> yeah you were like twins and and then of course you started overtaking him big time yeah yeah so with with Grey, again, did you feel you were fobbed off by medical staff as well when you, you tried to flag up your concerns? Yes, but also not having had any knowledge of babies. At first, I had no idea at what stage they would sit up. Um, and Graham, for Graham, that was 10 months. Well, sometimes babies were walking by that time. He couldn't crawl. Uh, I had no understanding of what the developmental stages were you know what ages they would be was there no educational books well uh, provided when no, you left hospital no, there wasn't there, there was a college course and i was thinking about going to it about young development young children and that this friend that i'd met just sort of poo-pooed it and said oh don't be ridiculous you know why are you thinking about that you know and i often think i should have gone and done that course and then I would have had more knowledge because my knowledge was nil yeah but then if you'd never 
been around kids, no, then no, how are you no supposed idea. to know? No, exactly, yeah. And so when, when you felt pregnant with me, was that immediately after Grey, or did you lose another baby in between? I lost another baby in between, yes, yeah. And that must have been incredibly hard for yeah, you. So. Yeah, it was, you know, because you thought, right, we've done it once, now we've cracked it, we'll be able to do it, you know, and of course it, it was a bit devastating. But then you came along. And, uh... <laughs> for, what's, for what that's worth. <laughs> Wouldn't be without you, as you know. We were having a chat last night about how traumatised you felt from Graham's birth. Can you talk a bit about how you felt and what memories you had of that experience? Well, I used to get kind of flashbacks as though I was doing it all again. Um, and I know, although I wanted to have another child for Graham to have a brother, a sister, the thought of going through it all again, you know, really filled me with great anxiety. And, and But then I thought to myself, well, you came through it, so however painful it was, you can do it again. Um, but I must admit, I was dreading it. Were you given the option of having a C-section or anything like that to make it easier? No, no. Because it was classed as a normal birth with Graham, even you, though it had been induced. And even though it didn't feel normal to you and that it like, ran on for much longer than it should have done? Yes, yes, yeah. In, in fact, in retrospect, um, I realised that sometimes the nurses called him a prem baby and... Yes, I suppose he was induced two weeks before they thought his due date was. But I mean, I, th I think maybe they'd even got the dates wrong and he might have been, even been more mature, you know, premature. Because he did have some, sort of some white hair, you know, which is supposed to be a prem baby. Mm, yeah, Stanley had. <laughs> Stanley yeah, was my little goat well. boy, yes, yeah. yeah. He had little hairy shoulders and yes, hairy ears. Yeah, and... Yeah, exactly, yeah. So... I have to apologise to listeners because um, if there's a very strange noise, it is my, my mum's cat, Napoleon, shouting because he doesn't like being locked out and ignored. <laughs> so by the time, because there's about 18 months between me and Grey, isn't there? Yes, yes, there is, yeah. So by that time, did you feel you had come out of the depression? Do you know, I really can't remember. I can't remember a beginning or an end. I suppose it was a gradual sort of thing. And maybe even if I had PND, maybe it was replaced by anxiety of to whether you were going to come to full term and if you were going to be okay. So even I, if I technically didn't have PND, I, I had a great deal of anxiety. Mm. And, and how old was the, the other baby that you lost? Well, I think all of them were... 12 weeks, about 12 weeks, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that must have been incredibly hard, extra hard, sort of going through that whilst also having to look after Grey. Yes, yes, exactly, yeah. Yes, because there was always that magic number that you wanted to try and get past, you know. Mm. And, and, of course, I think once you've had that number of miscarriages, you're always going to be worried that okay we're past the three months but that doesn't mean to say you're going to get to the full term 
Yeah, yeah. And Dad's sister had a... She had a stillborn, didn't she? Yes, she did. And I, th I think the baby was quite profoundly disabled, I think. Yeah. I remember you telling me once that after one of your miscarriages, you were in hospital but put in with pregnant women. That just sounds like the most barbaric thing to do to somebody who's just lost their um, baby. No, it wasn't me that was... It was somebody, when I had had the baby, it was somebody was put into our ward that had lost her baby. I mean, I never was hospitalised after any of the miscarriages. I just, it happened at home and I just carried on. Ah, because I, I got that wrong then. I thought yeah. you'd yeah. been sat with other pregnant women. While no, it wasn't, just... no, not having had the, no, it was the other way round. There was some poor woman sent back to bed in the same ward as everybody else with their babies. And she'd lost her baby. Oh, my God. And that, that is so awful, isn't it? When was that? Was that... I think that was... I think that was maybe after you, when you were born, I think that happened, mm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Just awful. Yeah. So were you given any sort of monitoring? Um, because if you'd been prescribed tranquilizers by your GP, did they monitor you through your pregnancy with me in terms of your health? Um, well, I just had the usual sort of checkups. I mean, I didn't have to go to the hospital weekly like I had to with Graham. Um, and it was just basically weight, blood pressure, and my blood pressure was always high. And so I got preeclampsia again. But what about your depression? Was there any importance no, that, put that on was, that? There was no, no, no mention of that. Of your mental state yeah. at all, nothing yeah. at all, no support whatsoever. How did the pregnancy run then, second time around? Were you induced again, or yes. was it natural? Yes, I was induced again, because obviously I was getting preeclampsia again. But the induction was slightly different. I think I was given a hormonal drip, and I think you appeared about six hours after the induction, as opposed to 27 hours with Graham. So, you know, it was a lot faster and a lot more bearable. I was going to say, was it easier? Yes, yes. I mean, it was as painful, but obviously not for 14 hours. You know, it was mm. um, only for about five hours. So I was in that sort of stage, yeah. And was Dad with you? Yes, he was, yes. Did that help? Um, well, I suppose it did, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike the first pregnancy where I was literally on my own overnight in the labour ward all on my own and not knowing what was going on, Dad was there and I think there was much more continuity of people mm. looking after me. You know, I was aware that there was a nurse there or midwife. Yeah, I think that makes a, oh, makes difference. Such a difference. Such a difference, yes. Was it more straightforward, the delivery? Yes. Yes, it was. I mean, you did get stuck with your shoulder, but they just sorry, <laughs> sorry about that. You. <laughs> then I think your dad said you sort of shot down the bed. Right. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Hi. Yeah. Um. Did you feel anything when you met me? And then, please be honest, because it's it's all right, you know. Well, relief, but delighted I'd had a daughter. You know, I was really delighted to have. One of each, shall we say. But and I, no euphoria? Or... No, I'm afraid not. Not 
That's all right. <laughs> Magic you. <laughs> and but I mean, I bonded with you much more easily. Whether that was because you were the second child, and I was a bit more used to what the experience was all about. But of course, it didn't take away all the tiredness because you seem to need feeding about every two and a half hours, day and night. Oh God, so and I've always been greedy. That, that was, <laughs> you know, that was so terribly exhausting once again that I just got to that state of just being so exhausted and anxious. And and I'm sure that is a big, con- you know, big contributor mm. to PND. Oh, I definitely, yeah. I, I think lack of sleep and exhaustion, mm. it, it's mental torture. And I think... I I know even now if I don't sleep properly I I feel much more anxious than if I've had a good rest. Did you find the feeding easier this time round or No, not really, but I I think I was more prepared that although I tried I did sort of come to the realization the bottle feed would be better sooner. So that was much better. Um, the other thing happened was that we were having some foreign students to stay at that time, who I was also looking after, but one of the students who was a Vietnamese girl absolutely adored you, and she loved to change your nappy and feed you. <laughs> poor and, poor and, women. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I got a bit of respite through her, actually. Through Evelyn. Yes, yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. I know sort of in the past when you've talked about that period when so you had the students to sort of help make ends meet because you were very hard up. You said that that time you were just like on autopilot, really. Yes, well, with the first first students, I, I was, you know, and I, I could hardly talk to them even. That was after Graham. Yeah, I found that very difficult when I was expecting you, really, I suppose. I was still very low and... Yeah, I just was in this dark, dark bubble, really. I think that's all you can, you know, and everything was going on around me and I almost became that I didn't want to leave the house and if I had to go and buy a loaf of bread, I'd wait till 10 to 5 before the shops close and then make myself go out because I had to. Mm. Um, so you felt a bit agoraphobic, yes, would you say? Yes, yeah, definitely, yes, yeah. So when Evelyn sort of came to live with us, that was a bit of a respite did you have support anywhere else no I think by that time I had realized there was a clinic that you could go to to get your baby weighed and I did go infrequently because it was a long walk away you know Mm. but there wasn't really much help other than pop them on the scales yes they seem to be all right okay you're doing okay off you go yeah and did you go back to your GP a second time yes Yes, I did, and uh, I think one of the things they said, well, we won't put you back on the birth pill because that might contribute to it, and I guess I just got pushed the pills again, but I honestly can't remember when I came out of the depression. Mm. You know, there was no clear-cut end to it. I suppose gradually my mood sort of lifted a bit. I think what did help was that I'd heard somewhere about having bonuses for the day, Mm. sort of like looking around yourself and seeing a nice flower or a nice sunset or something like that, which would lift your mood a bit. And I think that definitely sort of helped. So 
I give that advice is to try and sort of lift yourself out of the bubble and just try to focus on something that's beautiful or mm. calming or yeah. some music or something like that, just simply to try and overtake these horrible feelings and, and it does kind of help you slightly come up a bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that sounds very, very like mindfulness. Well, or what we call yes, mindfulness it now, nowadays, yeah, and um, yeah. that was the sort of message that was, you know, I remember like at the beginning yes. of the COVID lockdown, people were saying things like that, you know, to, yes. to try and lift people's yes. yeah. mental wellness. Um, was it around this time that your GP said the infamous be more bovine? Oh yes, definitely, definitely. Yes. So can you t- talk a little bit about oh, that? Gosh. Well, I just think I, th- I think I went along, and um, it just said, trouble with you. You're too intelligent. You said you just need to be more bovine, just be like a cow. You know? <laughs> what was that supposed to mean? Did you find <laughs> that helpful, Mum? Not really. Whether he thought it might help with the breastfeeding, I don't know. <laughs> Very supportive. <laughs> yeah, rubbish. So um, yeah, it's so difficult to sort of identify when you begin to feel better or when you have more good days than bad days but do you feel there was anything good about your experience or anything that sort of you learned from having gone through that difficult time I think you appreciate the good times much better you know if you've had the low lows then you appreciate the highs much better you know you're more appreciative of everything once you are out of it and I think my mentality was when I was out of it, and as I said, I didn't have a definite end, but I was determined I was not going to go to that place ever again. So if I ever really got sort of down, and I used to get two or three days every month period mm. time where I'd feel start to feel really down, but I'd just sort of say to myself, look, this is only temporary. I'm going to feel all right in two or three days' time and ride through it. And somehow I've managed to stop myself from sinking down that big rabbit hole. Mm, yeah, and you, you've had some incredibly hard times since then. You know, you've had... Grey had cancer, like, very... You had thrombocytopenia. Yeah, I had <laughs> some crap genetic family. Um, but, yeah, you know, Grey's cancer was very, very serious. Then mm-hmm. Dad nearly died from heart attacks yeah. at 52, 52. Yeah. then you had the breast cancer yeah you know you have astonishing resilience um not to mention all the surgery you've had through your skin cancer so just to explain to to listeners that mum has had a life of skin cancer because was it your gp back when you were a child gave you arsenic yes as a medicine yes why well (laughs) Well, I think it was I think it he was an old doctor and it was an old form of medicine in those days what they thought it would do other than poison you I really don't know um yeah how many operations would you say you've had now oh 60 yeah and how many on your face 30, 40. Yeah. Possibly yeah. different treatments. And, and it just seems to be like relentless. Like oh, every every time you've got through one surgery, yes, you've got yeah. another but, surgery coming up. So, but you've always outwardly, to me, seemed very 
relaxed and resilient about all of that and it do you think that has anything to do with your sort of philosophy towards trying not to go into that hole again yes definitely definitely and you know even if I know I've got some surgery coming up I try not to get apprehensive about it as I said to you before I tend to be Scarlett O'Hara I'll think about it tomorrow tomorrow's another day and because I think constantly anticipating trouble is not any good for your mental health at all. Mm. We waste a lot of time worrying about stuff, and actually, yes. <laughs> yes, it doesn't right. change the situation, does no, it? No, it doesn't. No, and it just causes you angst, doesn't it? And then, of course, I've got the kidney problem, you know, and uh, I think you just start to appreciate every day you have, actually, you know. Does the the kidney disease ever get you down, Mum? I suppose I've got a climate. Well, not that's not the right word, is it? Really, when you get used to it, you've sort of resigned it and uh, resigned. Yeah, that's yeah. A, that's the word. Really, it is what it is. Fortunately, through modern medicine, I'm keeping fairly well and haven't yet had to go on to dialysis. Um, but I, I mean, I know it will be a life-limiting thing. So I just have to appreciate every day I get. Yeah. And if you could look back now at yourself as a young mother, what would you want to say to yourself? You know, I really don't know. I, th- I think I would just try to say, look after yourself. Don't just look after everybody else, but just look after yourself as well. Yeah. Because if you don't look after yourself, you can't look after other people. Yeah, yeah. So how did you feel when I announced I was preggers? Oh, I was absolutely delighted, but also I had this fear that you would have the same labour as me, and the last thing I would discuss with you was what kind of labour I had, you know, because everybody's different and you mm-hmm. might have sailed through everything. Um. I knew you'd had a very difficult labour yes. and I, I knew that you had nightmares about it still. Yes, yes, and, definitely did, yeah. yes. And I think that went on for quite a few months, really, yeah. But, yeah, it was it was weird, wasn't it? Because I remember I sadly lost a baby before I had Stanley and I remember you'd come up because um, Matt and I got our wedding booked the following July and you'd come up and it was like, I think it was November time. Mm. And you came up to London to help me look at wedding dresses, dresses. yeah. Yeah. And um, so I told you I was pregnant in the cafe, and but I had to tell you that we were worried that I may have lost the baby already because we, I think we'd had an issue with the scan or something, um, and there was a concern that the baby might not be or the pregnancy might not be valid or whatever you call it. And yeah, I actually had a miscarriage whilst trying on wedding dresses with you, didn't I? Well, that's right. And I I remember you sort of kind of collapsed when we were going down the stairs, weren't we? Mm. And uh, um, somebody called an ambulance. I think it might have even been the shop where we were in with the wedding dresses. Um, And we had to wait for hours, didn't we, for somebody to come. Mm. I think there was a police chap, a paramedic came and kept apologising about the lack of the ambulance. Yeah, that was really... 
really hard time for both of us. Yeah, it's weird. Like I didn't realize that that miscarriages were painful. Like, mm. yeah, it was excruciating pain. Yeah. Like I went Certainly, into shock. Yeah. Yeah, but um, definitely. but happy happy days. We've got lovely Stanley yes, now. Yes, yes. And um, I mean, I know you very much wish you could have been there for the birth. Yes, but. Vicky wanted to spare me the angst and I just got a telephone call one morning saying, you're a granny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Stan, Stan decided to turn up three weeks early. Yes. So we, we decided not to tell anybody um, that I'd gone into labour because we didn't want to worry anybody. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and he was born um, on Graham's birthday. Yes, that's right. It was a wonderful birthday present for Uncle Graham. Yes, yeah. he was absolutely delighted. Um, but the thing is, I've been stressing to you to try and have a bit of rest because, you know, having a baby is quite, a, quite an energetic time and you need all your energy. So she rushed around the house doing all sorts of things and then the next minute Stanley appears with no rest. <laughs> Yeah. Which well, it didn't help. <laughs> well, I had I had a month. I think I'd I'd booked a month off, a month or three three week weeks off. Stuff, yeah. So I had the first week where I was like, right, I'm gonna get everything ready. Absolutely. I'll get my bag packed, and yes, I yeah. remember like sort of washing and ironing. Baby grows. That's the only time in, in in history that I've ever ironed a baby grow. I think I might have even ironed muslins. <laughs> but yeah, never again. And, uh, yeah, my waters broke just after a, a trip to Ikea. I think I was definitely nesting at that point. Um, you you talk about recognising symptoms in me. What, yes. What did you first, like, what gave you the feeling that I might be coming well, down? Well, I, I think because I could see your anxiety. I could see how tired you were, how you were a bit bewildered as to quite what to do. And I went along with you to a baby clinic, didn't you? And we sat next door to Emma, didn't we? Was that, yeah. Yeah, which was great. That was nice. And, yeah, uh, that was a lifesaver. Because, that, God, that bloody baby clinic was horrible. Just, mm. yeah, I actually met one of my best friends through mum. <laughs> so I think Stan was about six and a half weeks old. And uh, Emma's baby was five weeks old. And uh, you kind of match-maked... <laughs> <laughs> and we, we sort of swapped numbers and uh, yes. I've got a lifelong friend, friend yeah, which was great through it yeah, yeah but... because I knew how important it was to have a friend you know you just hit it off straight away didn't you yeah, yeah. and um, but yeah that baby cleaner was bloody horrible we had to like go up to the front and strip off your baby in front of like a room full of people watching you and hope that they didn't shit themselves on the scales. I'm sure that more than it that. was yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it was just awful. But then I seem to remember we went round and you had a talk with somebody, didn't you? And I think that's when I kind of mentioned that I thought you were getting postnatal depression and and I think the woman said, Well why do you think that? And then we we were both sitting there with tears in our eyes and I think she realised yes we, yes we were. Yeah. You know, yeah. because I was feeling bad for you because I felt you know and obviously she took notice of that and made you an appointment, I think, didn't she, to see somebody, get wow. support? God, again, you know, it's... Well, she can't remember. 
blanked out as to what mm. happened when. Yes, um, yeah. But I remember I had a, it was a breast feeding counsellor called Linda, Linda Tarrant, who was again a lifesaver because she formally diagnosed me when she was helping me. And um, yeah, but just, yeah, the lack of knowledge and care and support from health visitors was quite, quite shocking. You know, I asked for a support group to meet other mums with postnatal depression and I was referred to a postnatal group <laughs> a postnatal group and a postnatal depression group are <laughs> separate entirely yes. separate things and yes. I remember going to the postnatal group and just crying throughout having to sing if you're happy and you know it <laughs> you know I can look back and laugh but that was an idea and uh, yeah, I remember getting whisked off into another room because <laughs> I could tell something wasn't quite right. Mm. But I, th- I think, I think Matt, my husband, was concerned that we would somehow persuade each other. I mean, he didn't understand no, he PND didn't. at the time, and he, I mean, he totally acknowledges remember, that. I can remember but, you saying he told you to man up, which is not the thing to say to your wife when she's suffering from. No, no, and he, you know, God, he, he utterly regrets that, and he holds his hand up that that is not what you say to somebody going through it, but he didn't understand no. the illness then, and I think he thought that somehow between us we'd sort of cook up that, you know, or, or somehow, like, talk me into having PND, which is such a, such a sort of backwards way of thinking about it because you can't just persuade oh, yourself no. you've oh, no, got it no. it's right. it wasn't an idea that I gave you to have PND no no I, exactly no. <laughs> and I recognized you were starting to have PND yeah yeah but I, I really appreciate you having this conversation because I think it's you know I know it's been really hard for you to sort of talk about those experiences but I think it's so important that mm. The women do talk about it, and I think especially women of your generation get to acknowledge what you went through because... Well, I think it's also been quite cathartic for me, actually, talking about it. I think I do have a bit of advice, though, for new mums. Go and watch Call the Midwife, and you'll get a bit more knowledge about babies. And yeah. <laughs> what about one born every minute? <laughs> one born every minute, yes. well, If that's, that's still on. Necessary. I think so, yeah. But, I mean, in those days you had... I, I do seem to remember that there was one film of seeing a baby born that I saw on TV, which totally traumatised me ever before I had a baby. But now you're seeing it all the time, aren't you, in yeah. film on TV. So at least women are sort of seeing the reality of it and have that preparation of what it's going to be like. Yeah, yeah. What would you say to mums with their daughters or to friends who are concerned about their loved one possibly having PND? Well, I, I, I think, you know, you, you must try and talk to people. I, th- I think the biggest help to me was if somebody had kind words. I think being able to let somebody care about you and you can voice your feelings a bit, you know, and if somebody can identify that in a new mum, 
and say, look, I know where it's going, you know, it, it does end eventually. You can't say when, you, there's no magic formula for it. It's individual for everybody, but you're not the only one in the world, which is what you think you are at the time. Mm, definitely. And that's, you know, that's the whole point for doing this podcast is to help people feel less alone and to know that you're not going to feel like this forever, that you will get through it because, you know, we mm -hmm. have and so many other strong women and men have and that you will get a sense of who you were yes. back. I, I think, unfortunately, today's modern life where families are separated, so you don't have your family around you in the same area, you're not getting that family support that you might have done as they would have done in days past, shall we say, where you would be getting help and advice or may see your sister have a baby and, you know, you're so isolated, sort of. I forget what they call it when you're... Not the atomic family, but when you're isolated. And, it, I mean, you know, you can be in a different country from your family, can't you, these days, you know? Although, having said that, if you'd been close to your mum, I don't think it would have made any difference. Well, no, it depends on what type of mum you've got. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. But even maybe not having the help of my mum, at least I would have had some of my friends. Yeah, yeah. And how how were, like, Maureen and co, when you... Did you ever talk to them about PND or how you were feeling? Um, well, no, because we were in Reading then and we were away. So, I mean, in those days, we didn't even have a telephone. So it wasn't like you could pick up a phone and talk to somebody. You either had to go to a telephone box or ask a neighbour if you could phone, but that would only be sort of in emergencies, you know, so... There wasn't really any communication. I mean, today we've got all the tech, you know, technical stuff. You can have face-to-face -face meetings and all the rest of it, you know. So it was only perhaps if people came to visit you, you know, that perhaps it was discussed or something. But I think actually when Maureen first came up to me with her two children on her own, Actually, it was really just to have a bit of time with me and, and more or less on the last day to tell me she was getting divorced. You know, so... I mean, obviously, the children were older then, so I was past the PND, you know, but... Have you ever spoken to about it? No. Since? No. Maureen's one of these people that she probably didn't have it and she probably wouldn't believe it was a thing, you know, she's... She's a little bit like that, I'm afraid, you know. If she hasn't experienced it, well, it, it isn't, you know, mm. it's not there sort of thing. You know? Yeah. Mm. Have you ever met anybody that sort of went through it of, from your circle of friends? No. Not that it was spoken about, no. No. No, I think it was just not talked about. I mean, I can remember there was sort I think it was... The time when I think Librium or some tranquilizing tablet was dished out to any woman that seemed to have any problems, you know, it just seemed to be the answer to all things. I'll just give them Librium. So Librium or Lithium? Or, do you know? No, I think it was Librium called, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. No, but uh, anyway, thank goodness that today there is a lot more help.
Mm, and yeah. a lot, a lot more understanding. Lot more I mean, it's not going to stop it happening. I'm sure, but at least if it does happen, people can be knowledgeable about it, and hopefully, it will help them reach out for that help. Definitely. And hopefully, maybe some of the husbands might get involved in hearing some of this, so that they can understand it better. Definitely. You know, I, th- I think it's so important for for people to share their experiences and to normalise that conversation. And you've been incredibly brave um, going back there and, and telling us about it. And the important thing with this podcast is that I, I want to also hear from the children of parents with postnatal depression to emphasise that it doesn't affect the relationship you have with your child um so I would like to take this opportunity to say you've been an absolute brilliant mum and you are a brilliant mum and growing up I never ever once felt or realised that you were going through what you did because you never never let it show that you were going through that horrible experience and I'm I'm just sorry I wish I'd been there for for you (laughs) I think it's tissue time now. Yeah, it's definitely tissue time. I swear, on every every one of these recordings, there's a bit where I suddenly go really nasal and it's because <laughs> I'm, like, crying like a bitch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, thank you, Mum. That's OK. I just hope that it's some sort of help, you know. I think the more it's put out there and the more knowledge there is and the more acceptance, you know that it it does happen because there's so many pressures on young women today about whether they can stay at home they stay at home with their children they're guilty because they're not working if they go out to work they're guilty because they're not staying at home you know it's just just such a difficult time I think for women to be honest at least sort of not necessarily my generation but the generation before Okay, yes, you were stay-at-home mums, but it was a definite role. But today it's almost as though being a stay-at-home mum is not valued. Mm, And and yet it's one of the most important jobs in the world because you're helping to raise the future generations. Well, I'd say it is probably the most important job. exactly. And you're absolutely right, it is completely undervalued. Mm. It's funny because we used to have a joke growing up, me and my best friends, that... Um, we used to always call you just mum because whenever you used to leave voice messages back in the days of answer phones it was like it's just mum and and we'd always joke that you know (laughs) you're not just mum you're mum you know (laughs) Um, but I think you're absolutely right you know women do get judged and it's a, a, an entirely individual thing whether you decide to stay at home whether you decide to go to work whether you work part-time mm-hmm. um but all that bullshit about you can have it all that's just nonsense because yeah you can have it all but you'll just run yourself ragged trying absolutely yes yeah exactly thank you very much that's okay love, love you love you too if you enjoy this episode of blue mum days please rate and subscribe It only takes a minute, but it genuinely makes a difference to how many people can find it, which means helping more parents in need. Thank you.